1: Welcome in to the Autzen Audible's podcast post-game edition. I'm Matt Brady America Eric on the show as always. Uh, We are recording from our hotel room after a very exciting 34-31 victory by the Oregon Ducks over the UCLA Bruins. We've had a good opportunity to kind of talk this game out. Uh, Eric and I picked up some dinner. Uh, got out of Roseville a little later than normal, so we're apologizing for getting this up so late, but a game that, boy, it could have gone in so many different directions. It could have been a blowout loss, it could have been a blowout win, it could have been an epic collapse, and it ends in a win. And it
0: ends up being what every Oregon game it feels like this year is, which is like a one-score game where the defense has to defend the lead at the end. Um, like Literally, this feels like kind of a carbon copy of the last three games. Obviously, Stanford, they lose. But, again, because of some ineptitude on offense, which we have to get to, which, by the way, followed some really great offensive play, um... Oregon's defense has to make a pick at the end of the game or else this one goes to overtime or maybe they lose. And like you say, it's a huge collapse because Oregon's up 17 points, three plays into the fourth quarter. And it really felt like, boy, this is it. Here they've come. They've turned the corner. That, that game we've been waiting for has, has, has arrived. And Oregon is going to put together a really strong final three quarters of the game. They started slow, but they'd scored 34 uh, almost on thirty four an answer, thirty four to three run yep. after after uh, UCLA scored the first two touchdowns, and it just felt like okay, here it is, they're going to do it, and then it's ter- interception, interception, touchdown, touchdown, and suddenly UCLA has the ball near midfield with like forty five seconds to go, I'm and like, it, what? What? And we're all kind of like, is this going to happen again? Is this going to be another Stanford game? And it turned out it wasn't quite that, um, but it's a win. DJ James mm-hmm. saves the day with the interception, and, and, and here we are now reflecting on a team that's bull eligible, which it's means. not even a story. I was going to say, which means nothing to anyone listening. Like, I don't even think we've talked about the fact that yeah. they're bowl eligible. They now have won six games. Um, and it's a team that, that you can now point to and say, there's another, I don't want to say marquee win because UCLA now has three losses, but it's another very respectable road win.
1: This is the stretch that Oregon went in about a five, Possession game here. Right, five possessions. 12 plays, 87 yards, touchdown. 12 plays, 80 yards, touchdown. 6 plays, 75 yards, touchdown. 4 plays, 22 yards, touchdown. They then had a 4 play, 24 yard drive that ended with a fumble, but the defense gets the ball back on a turnover on downs by UCLA. And they go three plays, 62 yards, touchdown. Like, I think that was probably the best stretch of football, offense, defense, special teams, that we had seen all year. And if – and I kind of talked about this on my story on duckterritory.com, that if Oregon could just capture Mm -hmm. that 35 minutes of football – And bottle it up and reproduce it on a consistent weekly basis. Yeah. They are a top three team in the country. And we are talking about this team as a legitimate contender to win it all. And this is a complete perfect example of this entire season for Oregon.
0: Yeah, it is. And it's also, I think, totally encapsulates the quarterback issue. Yes. Because we have to say this. Anthony Brown, after Anthony Brown has his 43-yard touchdown, which is Oregon's last touchdown of the game, we turned to each other and said, pac player of the week? Yep. Like Pac-12 offensive player of the week? Because at that point, he had about 280 yards passing. I think he had like eight incompletions. 85 yards rushing. 85 yards rushing. It was just like, wow, what an incredible game from Anthony Brown. And you saw it on social media. I posted something saying like, hey, credit to him. And people were really gung-ho in supporting him. You saw it on DuckTerritory.com, the message board. Fans being like, "All right, he's proving something here. This is this is what he's going to be all year. Let's get behind him." And he really felt like he won the fans over, and then he comes out and throws two of the worst picks you'll see in a season in about I think that was consecutive possessions. Yes, and suddenly Oregon's basically playing a game a game that felt completely over is suddenly really really competitive at the end here, and we, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack here because I don't know why they're throwing especially on the second one. Period. But gosh, I think we saw kind of the you know the Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde of Anthony Brown, just like this whole team.
1: The first interception, he came out and flat out was like, "Yeah, that was horrible. That was bad on me. I should have ran it. Yeah, shouldn't have thrown it." Um, it, I mean, he instantly in the media room knew the fault, knew the solution, knew what he should have done. The second one, Mario Cristobal said there was a miscommunication. Anthony Brown didn't really talk much about it. Chris will said it was a non QB issue, which is like okay. Okay, is that, what, does what that is mean? that? Yeah. But the issue is is you brought it up, I brought it up. They never should have been throwing in the first place. In yeah. that drive, when they're up ten points. Or at that point, they're up three points, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. They're up three points. And UCLA has just scored back to uh, back to back touchdowns, and all of a sudden we have a football game. The offense just made a horrific play. That drive was going as it should have. Mm -hmm. Eight plays, 51 yards. They chewed up almost over just over three and a half minutes of game time. They didn't have to throw, and so while it was like just a monumentally awful throw, a bad throw by. Anthony Brown, and he plays a fault in it. The main fault is on Joe Moorhead and a Mario Cristobal for calling the play in the play.
0: Yeah, I, Anthony ends up making the bad decision to throw the ball where he throws it, but that should not have been a passing play. So here's where the circumstances were. It was second and nine at the UCLA 24 with three minutes to go. UCLA had just called its second time out of the half. They had one time out left. Hypothetically, let's say Oregon runs it up the middle and, and maybe gets let's say five yards on two runs. Suddenly, it's UCLA's out of timeouts. Oregon has it maybe like fourth and four. Yeah. Fourth and three, let's say, something like that, with like a a minute, 45, two minutes to play. And they make a decision that, hey, if we get this first down, the game's over, or we kick a field goal, go up six, and we trust our defense to protect this. Where UCLA can't kick a field goal to tie it and force overtime. They have to score a touchdown to win, and they have no timeouts, and they have to go the length of the field with an offense that's not built to throw the ball down the field. Um, just a really bizarre sequence, and I, I don't quite get it. Um, in part because it feels like they didn't learn from what happened against Stanford, because it was poor clock management there, where they threw it. And again, I we've now gone back and watched that play. And it was a screen pass set up to Travis Die, where if, if this is back in the Stanford game, where if, if it was a complete pass, he might have scored or it would have ended the game. But this is one where it's even more perplexing, and I just don't understand these end of game situations here, where. Why, why be so aggressive there? What, like the, the, the payoff is maybe you throw a touchdown, the, and what ends up actually happening is you, you end up throwing an interception and really giving UCLA a new life. And part of me, and I asked you this on the Uber drive back, like if Dorian Thompson Robinson doesn't get hurt, Does like, UCLA I, win? UCLA might win. Yeah. Probably do. I mean, they, they at least put themselves in a better spot to tie it. I don't
1: want this to this podcast to turn into a... Let's, yeah, let's try to make it more negative. Po- Yeah,
0: let's focus on some positives.
1: And because there were negative Because like, I'm with you. Like, there's so much I want to talk about that's a, from a negative standpoint. But this team won. Yeah. on Against a team in the Pac-12 and UCLA who's probably one of the better teams in the league. I mean, they throttled uh, LSU earlier this year. Um, they have... A very veteran team. I think Chris was it you that brought it up, or was it Crystal Ball that said that, like their offensive line or their 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 their
0: yeah, it was Crystal O
1: line, D line have as many have more seniors on the two deep of those two position groups than Oregon does on its entire roster. Like this was a this is a Seenor very team. this is a very solid opponent um, that Oregon just beat. And they probably show to some voters that they're better than what their top 10 ranking is. Because let's be real, like, yes, they've not been blowing some teams out of the water. But at the same time, they should be ahead of a couple other teams. Mm -hmm. And this is going to open the door for that. Oklahoma State lost this weekend. Penn State lost this weekend. Um... You've seen a couple other teams go real close to losing. And so I don't want to be so negative, but this team's 6-1 and now. They're Mm -hmm. probably going to be eighth in the country. Mm -hmm. They're in the driver's seat to win the conference. And I think for two quarters, we saw the potential of this team. Mm -hmm. And they could be really, really good. And Anthony Brown was a big contributor for that because they could not run the ball. And they needed yep. Anthony Brown to play like that. I was just
0: going to go and say Oregon scores thirty-four points here and has basically no established run game from the running backs. Like it's it's okay. This is we talked about this at dinner. It's so funny because Travis Die sets an NCAA record four touchdowns on yeah. four consecutive carries. Never happened before. His longest run for the day six yards. <laughs> 14 carries for 35 yards. A very underwhelming effort. By the way, it sounds like he had a migraine pregame and it was questionable to even play, which is like kind of like, wow. Just totally organ block. Like, wow. Like, you're, your
1: most like versatile player doesn't get hurt, but he might not play because he's got a freaking migraine. Like, how? Like, what? Okay. And Anthony Brown was really, really effective
0: throwing the football for a huge portion of this game. And it wasn't, by the way, just screen passes. There were some screen passes that were successful. They had some success there. He threw the ball down the field and I guess down the field by his standards of 15, 20, 25 yards down the field pretty successfully all, all afternoon. Um, you know, Devin Williams had five catches, 80 yards. A lot of those were down the field. Uh, Micah Pittman, same thing. Five catches, 46 yards. One of those was 29 yards. And that was a really good throw down the field. John Johnson had a long catch, um, that was down the field. Uh, you know, they collectively, the, the passing game was at its best. Threw for 296 yards. That's a season high. Um, again, they threw the ball for 296 yards and they ran for 121. I think that tells a pretty clear story about like where the success was found. And we knew going in this was the case. Usually, like, not a good pass defense, a very good rush defense, and all that kind of came together. Kudos for Anthony Brown for getting them there um, and for this passing game taking a step. I just think it's a little bit underwhelming and a little disappointing that it, you have to put the butt at the end there. Yeah, because it's it's a Anthony Brown played great, but. He, also, he almost was,
1: almost lost the game for you. Yeah, and I just
0: it's it's really frustrating because I, I won this podcast. I was hopeful this podcast could be a Ali Crow. I was wrong. Anthony Brown showed us something here. I want to see it a couple more weeks, but maybe, maybe he's really figured it out. And instead I come away going like the highs of the passing game were the highest of the season, but the lows were arguably the lowest because you almost cost yourself a game by two really ill-advised passes. Again, I don't know if I understand the strategy on even attempting a pass on the second one, but... Collectively, it's just a little disappointing um, that we have to say that, but I, I also now want to turn and talk about a lot of the positive stuff, because I think there is quite a bit to What's like. the
1: one that stands out the most? The biggest yeah. positive? Yeah. Kayvon Zippido? <laughs> very true. Very true. He was very good. <laughs> was quite uh, I, uh, to quote Mario Cristobal, uh he was solid. <laughs> Which was funny, because it <laughs> am like, I guess
0: Kayvon was sitting right next to him. <laughs> and I was kind of like, wow, you... That, you because Von Thibodeau, nine tackles, four and a half tackles for the last two sacks. You had some data. What is it? The sixth player this season, the NCAA, to do it, Yeah. And the first Oregon player since Nick Reed. in 2007. Get, I mean, an incredible performance. His best is a duck,
1: I think. This was a game where, I've said this to you, you've heard this comment, so it's not nothing going to be new to you, but when Von Thibodeau gets drafted in April, and ESPN throws up the highlight package, and Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay are just going crazy over highlights. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a game where ESPN really wants, like they just show all games against UCLA. (laughs) Yeah. Like every play he was unblockable and (laughs) we're trying so hard not to go negative, but this was a game where multiple times in this second half in particular, it was confirmed to our eyes that Kayvon Thibodeau should never be dropping back. It's In a coverage. coverage. Yeah. And instead should be just straight up going crazy at the quarterback yep. because for whatever reason we continue to see teams either go, hey, let's put our right tackle one on one against Kayvon Thibodeau, or let's put our left tackle one on one against Kayvon Thibodeau. My, my fa- or even crazier. Yeah, okay, this is my favorite. Let's go tight end against Kayvon
0: Thibodeau. Which, by the way, results in a blindside sack of the quarterback and a fumble, <laughs> which was, I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm watching that going like, why? <laughs> Like he was,
1: like, uh? Kayvon Thibodeau was, like, playing on Madden with Rookie, and you've got, like, the best defensive end in the game, and you're just going crazy collecting sacks. Like, he was straight-up unblockable and yep. gives you an idea of just... I think DJ James' game-winning interception, I think mm-hmm. his, his first interception, yeah. I think multiple throws by Dorian Thompson-Robinson landed incomplete because... Kayvon Thibodeau and this pass rush with him on the field is so much better. I mean, how many times did I lean over to you and be like, uh, Dorian Thompson's dead?
0: Like, oh, like three or four times. And somehow Kayvon is credited with one quarterback hit, which I would imagine is probably closer to like a dozen.
1: Yes. Uh, I, he was phenomenal. Um, one of my friends messaged me in a group chat on my phone during the game saying, enjoy this. Because we might be watching the best defensive player in our lifetimes at Oregon. Mm-hmm. He's playing at that level where it's that kind of a conversation. And you go, and I start thinking
0: like, man, it's a real. And we talked about this also after the game, Matt. Of like, it's such a bummer that his freshman year he was great, but half the year he wasn't starting. Twenty twenty was half of it was a COVID year. Twenty twenty one, which is going to be his last season, everybody knows it. He misses. Basically a third of the season with injury. Um, and now we've seen two consecutive weeks, by the way, one of which was a half of a game against Cal, what it looks like when he just is at his best. And it's unbelievable. And I have a hard time seeing an offense find solutions for this. And that's why I think going forward, I mean, we can talk about a lot of the reasons to be somewhat pessimistic if we want, but, like, I feel really optimistic now about this defense against just about anybody because when he pins his ear back, Ears back and, and just goes up field. I don't care who the quarterback is. I don't yeah. care who the left tackle or whoever is in front of him is. It's it's a it's an issue. He's going to make plays and boy, I mean, 14 tackles for loss as a defense. By the way, he had four and a half of those. Collectively, Oregon's defense deserves a ton of credit. This was a UCLA team that was averaging like 230 yards rushing coming in. Their running backs, who we were all week talking about how good they were, Britton Brown and Zach Charbonnet. A combined eighty yards rushing on thirty carries. Like, that's
1: that's really good, unbelievable. unbelievable. That was so good that Mario didn't didn't know the stat, mm-hmm. and he was read that, and he almost was at a loss for words. Like you could see it in his face; he was just like, "Whoa!" I did not realize we played that good against the run. Like he had an idea, but but when you put data to, you know, off data, you know, ideas. Mm-hmm. He was blown away. He, he had no idea that they, they did that good. And this is a UCLA offense that we mentioned at the beginning that they are so senior-laden up front along the offensive line. This was the second-best rushing offense in the conference. You know, they averaged 219 yards uh, per game. This is... A defense going into the week that's third in the conference in rushing touchdowns. It was 16. And Oregon pretty much bottled them up. And how many times this year have we talked about, oh, look how bad Oregon's run defense is against Stanford and Cal. We said the same thing. So those two teams, not good running teams, and they put up good numbers on Oregon.
0: Uh, Second half. This is uh, this is even more impressive. Second half, uh, I just saw this now. Second half, UCLA twenty rushes for seventeen total yards. Some of that's the sacks, right? But regardless, twenty times that were you know charged as a rush for less than one yard per carry for an entire half of football. And this is why I I, I come out of this going like, if they can play like this consistently against lesser offenses, which, frankly, they will be facing, especially against the run. The only other offense the rest of the year they'll face that will be comparable, maybe two, Utah, and then obviously Oregon State. Oregon State has the best rushing offense in the conference. Uh, We won't get into too much Oregon State talk here, but they had a pretty darn impressive win, by the way, at home against Utah um, shortly before we started recording this. But my point is there's no reason they can't shut down opposing run games like this. Colorado next week at home? could be a game where Colorado doesn't do a whole lot because they can't throw the football, period. And I would think that the way this Oregon run defense performed against a much better UCLA run offense should be primed for a game where it is just a very minimal day on the ground for the Buffs. And this defense, when it wants to, plays at such a high level. And yet you look up and you see they scored 31 points. And part of that is, I think, a little misleading because the first two drives of the game, Oregon was not on their A game, did not play very well. Um, There was a blocked punt that led to a short field for a touchdown. Um, And then at the end of the game there, I hate to say it, it, it's frustrating because this team doesn't play very
1: well at the lead. Yeah, isn't that weird? Like, this is a top-ten team that when their backs are against their wall, like, I'm paraphrasing here, but Mario Cristobal says they play at their best. Like, they almost are, like hey, if we need to reach optimal levels of execution, we need to have our, you know, we need to win or we go home with a loss type of a scenario. And yet this team, it was like this way against Ohio State, just holding on by your fingernails in that win, Mm -hmm. the last, what, three or four drives of the game. And then this one, it was the same way. It's... It's backwards. You would think top ten teams or elite teams that are in this kind of scenario aren't really maybe behind very often. And so it's a, oh, wow, we haven't been in this situation in a long time. How are we going to respond? Whereas they're used to putting teams away, and so it's just like clockwork. And it's inverse, which is strange to, to think about.
0: Yeah, What do you make of the defense right now? Because I, I, I'm, I'm really encouraged by Kevon Thibodeau. I'm encouraged by the play at corner, frankly, because I think, I mean, some of the stats here are pretty, and again, we talked about the rushing stats here, but some of the stats for UCLA, pretty darn impressive. Um, you know, I mean, Kyle Phillips has eight catches for 73 yards. Pretty much all that's underneath. Yep. Um, Greg Dulcich is maybe the best tight end ca- in the conference. Four catches for 51 yards. I and mean, this is a, this is an offense that really didn't produce much of anything from an explosive play perspective until the last part of the game. Um I think, collectively, Oregon, at all three levels, played really well defensively. I, I, I guess I just want to see it for all four quarters. And the, the thing that's perplexing is also the way this game starts, where the offense looks really ineffective early, and the UCLA offense just moved the ball right down the field in that first drive. It was a very discouraging opening drive of, very uh, okay, UCLA goes 75 yards, 12 plays, takes five minutes off the clock, scores a touchdown. Um, the next time down is a short field because of the block punt, like I said. But those first two drives, I, I think we both looked at each other and went like, this is – Why'd we come? This is – yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> we should – and then that sounds – those listening are like, wow, you guys – you guys should – what are you talking about? And we should, we should note that there's a little story to that because we both had terrible travel days coming into this. Of, of we having, both flew in day up. Yeah, we both had to get up at like 4 in the morning and two, two flights down. And Matt had a much better success rate with his Uber. I did not. I had to take like a $115 Uber from LAX that took about an hour and 15 minutes. So I got there right before kickoff. And and, and then to see Oregon just play pretty flat in the first quarter and go down 14 nothing. it was just kind of like, oh, that was a lot of effort for not a lot of fun. And then they turned around, like we said, played great in the middle of the game. I just want to see that consistent effort, both sides of the football, all game. Um Maybe that's too much to ask. I don't think it is. I think this team is talented enough to do it. You see in stretches just how good they are, and, and, and that's the thing. It's like that thirty-four to three run was so impressive on both sides of the football and all phases of the game that um, that I, I kind of go like, let's just see them if they can unleash that for a full game. You got something. But we've also been saying this all season, and yet this is the trend is. Really, really close, narrow wins where you're having to make plays in the final play, you know, part of part of the game to ensure you come out with a victory.
1: Oregon is bowl eligible. I think it tells you um, the expectations of this program from even like 15 years ago. That felt like not maybe like hey, my God, we're bowl eligible, we're going to a bowl game, but it's like hey, cool, now we're actually playing for like how good of a bowl game we're yeah. going to. Whereas now, it's like, cool, you made a bowl game. Oh, you're going to go six and six. You might get fired. Like, that's kind of where the expectations are now, it feels like, with this team. But, I'm with you on the defense that, looking ahead, the reason I'm talking about bowl eligible and six wins and whatnot, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a game on the schedule remaining now. Seeing how the defense is playing with Kayvon Thibodeau in full go, this team getting healthier on the defensive side of the ball, I don't know if there's another game on the schedule where I'm I picked Oregon to win by one in this game against UCLA. I was not confident at all. You were very similar in your Mm -hmm. in your confidence level. Jared picked them to lose. Uh this was the most up in the air game we'd felt like in a long time. And the way that the defense is played, I am with you in that I don't think there's a game left on the schedule that they that they will be underdogs in. They should they should go in and win every single game. I'm not sitting here telling you they're going to blow out every single team, or that they're going to win half their remaining five games in amazing fashion, blowout fashion.
0: Was I say Bl- blowout? What's a blowout? But, yeah, Oregon doesn't know what that is. But
1: these should be games that Colorado, awful. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a game that high high probability of a, of a win. Then they go out the on the road to Washington, and that game on on, the, on this schedule at the beginning of the year looked like it was gonna be one of the tougher games. One of the tougher games. And this should not be the case with Washington. It's gonna be look, Washington's gonna be fired up, it's a rivalry game, you know, neither of these staffs like each other, what what have you. But Oregon should put them away. Yeah. And then they come home and they play a Washington State team who's fired their head coach. They've got four assistant coaches who are gone, unavailable to play in that game wide talent disparity in that one. They should win you know that's one they should put them away. They go to Utah. that's a game that's gonna be difficult, I think, but it's winnable sure. it, And it's 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 a should win game. I mean you should probably win by eight, ten points and then you come home and you play Oregon State, which feels like the toughest game left on the schedule, which we never really would have thought of at the beginning of the year. But knowing how well Oregon plays and the talent that they have, especially on the defensive side of the football, and Kayvon Thibodeau and and Noah Sewell and whatnot, it's another game that they should win. I'm having a hard time looking at another game on this schedule saying, like, boy, it's going to take an A-plus effort from Oregon to win.
0: Totally. No, I mean, I think Oregon can win with, I mean, UCLA on paper is one of the more, might be the best team that they had on the schedule, to be honest with you. I mean, at Oregon State right now in Utah, I think, challenged them in that regard. Um, it, it's perplexing because I, I just looked at, I saw another stat here. Oregon averaged almost seven yards per play and UCLA averaged below four offensively. And this was a three-point game where Oregon had to sweat it late. And Oregon ran far fewer plays, in part because this UCLA offense killed some clock, it's kind of funny because this is Chip Kelly, who at Oregon was the exact opposite team. Who cares about time of possession? Who cares about how many plays you ran? Well, Oregon ran uh, what is that? 73 plays, 63, no, 73 plays, and 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 UCLA ran 91. Um, it, it's just this game is just perplexing for me even looking at the stat sheet right now of why why was it so close? And and the obvious answer is just turnovers and, and silly mistakes at, at inopportune times and. I, I will be curious to see going forward how they clean some of this up. How do they get off to better starts? Because that needs to change. Can, can you close a game? You know, and, and one of the things we said talked about the run game here. And I understand the idea of trying to throw the football because they didn't have a lot of success running it. But the, the, the degree of difficulty on some of these throws felt unnecessary in the moment. And I, I guess I just wonder, like, can this team consistently put teams away? Like, can they start fast and can they put teams away? Is right. two questions that you feel like you come away with. Um, which feels really strange this far into a season with a team that's going to be ranked eighth nationally, um, on Sunday when those rankings come out. Um, a couple other positives, I think, uh, I thought, I thought Noah Sewell played really well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I thought he was all over the place. I said, I called out, the, I shouted out the front seven, um, a lot. I think another individual player, Jeffrey Bassa.
1: I was just going to bring him up. Good. He needs to be talked He does. Two starts in a row. Yeah. At and, inside linebacker, and this was his best. Yes, he was very, very good, and I think you have you have note we've started to see a trend the last couple of weeks. Um, no offense to Nate Hulakani, mm-hmm. the walk, former walk-on senior linebacker, um, he is starting to see fewer and fewer snaps. Didn't play very much on the field, and Keith Brown is someone who played, I think, really good at Ohio State, but since that game hasn't had his best performances. And I think the last two weeks has really struggled for whatever reason. I mean, he's a freshman. It's He's in a very tough spot because he didn't play his senior year of high school football because of COVID. And so he's knocking off rest. He's playing in a role that... No one expected him to have to to play in because of injuries and transfers. And that's prompted Jeffrey Bossa to move from safety down to linebacker at down a level within this defense. And is another true freshman. And this is, a, this is 100% why I believe wholeheartedly stars matter. Okay? But this scenario... Proves a point that just because a kid is a high four-star recruit, what have you, doesn't mean he's just a plug-and-play player. Every player is different. They are going to take time, but over the longevity of signing elite recruiting class after elite recruiting class after elite recruiting class, you get the guys that are that are high-profile athletes that show up and are are game-ready. Week three, week four, week five, what have you, of the season. And my point is, is Jeffrey Bossa is one of those guys, it feels like. Like, as a true freshman, he's a three-star recruit. He feels like... I think he got bumped to a low four-star. That's right.
0: But very low. Like, I think one of the lowest four-stars.
1: He This proves the point that all guys are different. Some are ready to go right away, and he feels like he's one of them, where... He, maybe he's a little outmatched from a weight physicality standpoint, mm-hmm. but he's a better athlete than Nate. He's making, he's better in coverage than Keith Brown. Much better. And that is what's been lacking at the linebacker spot because Noah Sewell is solid, but it's nowhere near his strength <laughs> in pass coverage. And that's why Isaac Slade Matuatia was so important to pair with Sewell. And now you have another linebacker to kind of Not equal what Isaac Slade Matuati did, but pair well with Sewell, where you've got one really good coverage guy, you've got one really good run guy, and they're both solid at the other aspect of the defense. I think
0: with Bossa, the thing that was surprising in this game was that this was a game where I thought, okay, we know Keith Brown's better against the run than Bossa. That's what we think. I I figured this was a game where he wasn't going to play a lot. Instead, he was fifth on the team, or tied for third actually, on the team in tackles with six. He had a tackle for loss had a quarterback hit that was impressive, it was just all over the field. I'll have to watch the you know the, on the rewatch that Jared and I do, I'll have to see if maybe there were some errors that I didn't notice during the game. But I came away thinking he played at a very high level and it begs the question of what's the plan for him long term. Um could he just settle in here? I mean obviously he doesn't start over just in flow next year, presumably. Um but is he gonna could he be just a long term inside linebacker or 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 what is what we're seeing even more encouraging when we think about him as the future star at nickel. Um, regardless, I think Jeffrey Voss is a really good football player, and you're starting to see someone really come into his own at this position. Again, not a position he was recruited to play. Um, I think very encouraging. It's been the clear p- weak point of this defense is that position all season, ever since Justin Flo went down uh, Andrew Drew Mathis went down and Jackson Leduke was lost in full camp and Isaac Slade-Matthew-Tia transfer. We've run through all this before. A ton of turnover here. Finally, I, st- I think you're starting to see someone play at a high level there. And I think that's really important.
1: Moving forward, I, this team now gets ready for Colorado. Injury standpoint, Yeah, um, I think we'll end it here. Unless you've got anything pressing... No,
0: I think we should do injuries and wrap it up.
1: Jackson Powers Johnson goes down with what looked like a pretty bad injury. Agreed. No weight on it as he was coming off. He was in a boot um, in the second half of that game. Um... Real tough deal because yeah. this was a guy I think he started and yeah. was playing really well. And I, I think we said at the beginning of the year, and, and I will eat crow because I pushed this as hard as anybody out there. Kingsley Salamatia, we viewed, was like we almost he was a day a, one starter. We, we
0: thought he was going to start this season at some point.
1: And Jackson Powers Johnson was that true freshman this year. Like, mm-hmm. I think he was the one that kind of forced his way into the rotation. And then as games have started being played, has now kind of forced his way into the starting lineup. And this week, at least early on, it looked like things were really going that way in a good direction um, for him. So I'd be kind of surprised if he plays next week against Colorado. Um, And it might be a case where he's out maybe a couple of weeks. Um, Steven Jones also went down with an injury. Didn't return. Didn't they reshuffled.
0: reshuffled. Well, actually, that's one thing we should talk about the offensive line briefly. But you can yeah, there was a
1: lot of shuffling there. Yeah. Um, Mace Funa. Mm-hmm. That looked bad. Yeah, that didn't look good as well. No real update on him.
0: Yeah, we didn't get an injury update, did we?
1: But you could tell it was not a. And for him, it's unfortunate because it feels like he's back. He's hurt. He's back. He's hurt. He's you know playing every other week because of injury, and that prevents him. A, getting football shape, B, you know, gelling within the defense and and just the overall impact of things. So you hope he's okay. But to the offensive line, lots of shuffling, and I think this group showed why it's
0: pretty good. Yeah, okay, this is just so random here, but I have to bring this up. Why is Jackson Powers-Johnson credited with the tackle for loss on defense? That has to be the wrong player attributed. I just just noticed. Interception? Yeah, but why is it a tackle for loss? I understand if it was a tackle, oh, a tackle
1: for a loss, it makes no sense
0: that he was not on defense. Right? I just noticed it looking at the stats of like interesting. Like, well, the stats were all messed up. The stats located. were terrible. It must have been like either Popo Mabai or, or Trevor Mai who were forty-eight and fifty instead of fifty-eight. Um, sorry, that's a, a little bit of a tangent for no reason. They Alex Forsythe did not play in this game as well. Uh, it's the Detroit game not playing. Mark Christopher said that they thought he was going to play and something mm-hmm. happened right before kick. Okay, three straight weeks where he hasn't played. It's significant. He's a leader on this offensive line. Ryan Walk's been almost seamless filling in, by the way, at center. I'm really impressed with Ryan yeah. Walk. I'm, I've become a pretty big Ryan Walk fan over here. I just think he, he's really solid. He plays hard. But what they did around him was interesting. Here, they started the game with T.J. Bass at left tackle.
1: Yes, it's a guy who's played left guard for. You're like what? What's he what? Guards don't typically. Linemen don't go in to the out. They usually go. Out the in along a position change.
0: Uh-huh. And the weird part is George Moore is healthy, who's been the left tackle all season.
1: I don't think he's been very good the last couple weeks. I won't
0: argue that point, but it was interesting. He wasn't in the starting lineup. Um, Jackson Powers Johnson then slides was. in next to him. And then the right side is, I think they, I think they really like that combination of Stephen Jones next to Big Sala at right guard, right tackle. Cause they went back to that. They kept that intact and they said, Hey, TJ okay, TJ's going to play left tackle. We're going to have, uh, uh Jackson Powers Johnson at left guard, Ryan Walkett center. Um, that's how it started. By the end of the game, it was completely different. Yeah. It was left tackle. George Moore. George Moore's back in the game. It's left guard, Dawson Yaramillo. It's center is Ryan Walk. Right guard is TJ Bass. And right tackle is, uh, is Big Sala. So, tons of rotations, moving guys around. I think it's going to be really telling when we hear some injury news on kind of what the status for Powers Johnson, Forsyth, and Jones are going forward, because that's three guys who are starters or borderline starters or at least fill-in players that we don't know about going forward. Um, regardless, they clearly feel pretty comfortable with the five they had on the field. I don't think it was perfect. Again, the run game was not great. Um, but I think collectively I didn't feel terrible about what I saw from this group, and, and I will be curious to see going forward kind of what this rotation looks like. Was this
1: the best offensive line performance of the year? It might have been.
0: I mean, from a pass protection perspective, they were awesome. I mean, they just didn't run the ball very effectively, so I have a hard time saying that. I mean, they didn't have hardly any running success on a on design run plays so of the running backs. That's true. You know? And Ohio, pass, Ohio State was really good yeah. on the run.
1: Pass protection, they, really they were really good. They were really good. They were really good in pass protection. But you're right. The offensive line didn't open up a lot of holes. There weren't very many spots for Travis Ty to run. I also think they kind of just went away from running in general. Well, like, the
0: fact that he well, he had four straight carries with four touchdowns over the course of like a quarter and a half, which tells you all you need to know about how much he was getting the football.
1: It's going to do it for us here on the and Audibles podcast. Thank you for listening to this post-game edition. Look out for us on Monday with the mailbag. Send in your questions to Eric on Twitter, uh, or also hit us up through DM on Twitter. Um, duckterritory.com for your questions there as well until Monday you've been listening to the odds and audibles podcast
0: Duck to you later folks
1: okay picture this
0: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or I
1: can conquer it
0: I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road any road the steeper the better